I'm not sure we want to turn first tonight. We've been teaching on debunking lived experiences, and hopefully you're learning something. I won't stay here too much longer. The name of the game is change, and we don't deny that we all have a lived experience. We all have a different lived experience. But let me just say this. If you can't overcome your past, you're going nowhere. And I will say as a pastor, I can't help people that live in the past. I don't know if you knew this or not, but you can't change the past at all. So you have to do what one famous psychologist recommended and give up all hope of a better past. And then do what one famous book said, Hebrews chapter 6, and embrace the fact that now faith is. That's Hebrews 11, excuse me. Now faith is. Now faith is. Faith is not in the past. So if you can't get over your past, you're never going to walk in faith because faith is now. And I understand we feel shame. We feel hurt. Maybe something in the past is still uh, throbbing, but we can beat that if we want to. Or you can just keep coughing it up and living back there. The problem is when you drive forward looking backwards, you're going to crash every time. There's a reason that your rearview mirror is like one one hundredth of your windshield. <laughs> yeah. Your lived experience does not give you the moral high ground, so quit exalting it. You can't rest on your laurels. We forget the things that are behind, even our victories sometimes, and we press on. You have to. Your lived experience does not exempt you from God's word. I don't care what was done to you. I don't care where you've come from. The good news is I don't care where you come from. The bad news is I don't care where you've come from. So you're going to have to do something with the word of God. Because you and God is the majority, you and God is the majority, you and God is the majority, but you have to walk with God. And if you don't change, it's because you don't walk with God. And if nothing in your life changes, it's because you don't walk with God. And you need to hear that and hear it and hear it and hear it and hear it. Just because you've gone to this church for 30 years doesn't mean you've ever walked with God. And you can come to this church for six weeks and be radically changed. Religion is thick in this region, and it'll deceive you into thinking coming to church faithfully equals a walk in the Spirit. But that doesn't mean anything. Coming to church faithfully means you know how to drive someplace and sit down consistently. You've got to have to do what you're taught from the Word of God and make the changes. Your lived experience may be a greater force for evil and disobedience in your life than even the devil himself. And that's why we've been debunking the common phenomenon of exalting lived experience. We've hit on it several times, so we'll hit it on it again. We, we think you guys understand, especially college-age folks living in the kind of the back current of wokeness, that there's this flavor that says, my lived experience is my truth, and you can't question my truth because my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. You don't understand, that's a lie coughed up from the 60s that said, I'm okay, you're okay. Famous book of psychology. I'm okay, you're okay, which basically was an extension of Rogerian psychology, Carl Rogers, Rogerian, who said, who are you to judge? Well, I'm a born-again, spirit-filled preacher of the Word of God. I have a Bible, and I'm smart enough to read it. That's who I am to judge. And if you're fruitless, I judge you fruitless. And you only call yourself a Christian if we can prove it with your fruit. Who are you to judge? I'm a minister of the gospel. I can only fix you if I can judge. Furthermore, you're commanded to judge. Those that are spiritual judge all things. 
Yet they themselves are judged of no man. Jesus Christ said, judge righteous judgment. Judge nothing before the time. And then Paul said, don't you know you're going to judge angels? This is a judgy book. I wrote like nine or ten lessons on podcast, pod school about divine judgment. So, yeah, I can judge you. And if your lived experience is bumpkiss, so are you. Quit living back there. Move on. I don't know why people want to live in some horrific hellhole of a past when Jesus Christ says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But yet to come unto him, you have to leave where you were. And some folks, they almost have Stockholm syndrome with their past. Stockholm syndrome means you fall in love with your torturer. A lot of folks, spirit-filled, have Stockholm syndrome with their past. How could I ever leave my abusive husband? How could I ever leave my abusive past? How could I ever leave, leave my abusive culture? That's who I am. It's not who you're meant to be. It's might be who you are today, but that's why you're in this service, so God can make you different. Trying to give you hope for a better future, because if you keep looking backwards, that's where you're going to end up again. <clears throat> Hebrews tells us that they were mindful of where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. New Testament, if you're mindful, that is, you set your mind on it, of where you come from, not look back there and go, praise God, that's in the past. That's a good way to look at the past. Thank God it's in the past. But if you're mindful and dwell on where you come from, you'll have every opportunity to return. And that is sin. We didn't get born again to stay in the past. We got born again to be radically different. Your lived experience may be a greater force for evil and disobedience in your life than even the devil can be. Sunday night came out way harder than I thought it would. I just want to talk about having systems in your life to make you different. But we looked at James chapter 1. And we talked about being a forgetful doer of the word. You remember that? We can turn there real quick. Let's go to James chapter 1. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a doer of the word, excuse me, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding, beholding his natural face in a mirror. King James says glass, but we know it's mirror. For he beholdeth himself and goes his way and straightforward forgets what quality, we said that Sunday night, what quality of man he was. So real quick, I want to talk about the two mirrors in the Bible, or I should say how we approach the same mirror, because there's two ways to approach this mirror that is God's word. This is not the way to do it, obviously. <laughs> this mirror is God's word. It goes on to say, whosoever looketh, again, we have this image of a mirror, looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, that is, you keep looking. You look into the Word and you do it. You look into the Word and you do it. You look into the Word and you do it. You continue. So yeah, I had to ask Hannah some of these words because I wanted to be accurate. Present participle. I always want to say Garen, but it's not Garen. It's gerund. That's dumb. That's just fancy English word speak for. It's a constant verb. You continue looking and doing as opposed to verse 23, who looks and forgets. So past tense here in James 1, he beholdeth, past tense. 
He looked once and didn't do anything about it. He forgot what quality of man he was. And here's, here's the thing we don't like. The modern church has grown rapidly by denying this. When you look into the word, it is a mirror and it will show you your flaws. That's what a mirror does. Now, thank God the mirror doesn't leave us hopeless. But when you look into the mirror and it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and you look into that and you recognize you forsake the assembling together of yourselves as the manner of some is, then you is the sum that is that does, you're going to be convicted. This mirror is going to show you the pimple on your chin. This is why people don't like to continue therein. This mirror is going to show you the new gray hairs and the new crow's feet. This mirror is going to show you your double chin and that new ear hair that came in after lunch today. <laughs> this mirror is going to show you that stuff because it's truth. It's pure truth. It's unadulterated truth. And all it can do is be truth. And it's not biased. It's not prejudiced. It just is. And this is why Christians reject it. My job is to preach it because sometimes you don't know what you're looking at. You see that little mole there on your cheek? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was cute. It's not cute. It's carcinoma. We need to get that thing cut off. This is one of the reasons why Christians will look and say, mm, that's not for me. I don't want to read that verse again. Or you'll skip that whole passage in Proverbs because every time you read that chapter, it just convicts your soul. Pastor Vaughn taught us that the Bible is a hope chest. It is full of hope, but the hope is to help get you out of all those issues you can see in the Word of God. And it's a good conviction because it doesn't leave us the same. But this is also why people don't want to look into it. Preachers have learned if we preach and point out the things we're anointed to point out, according to Timothy, my job is to show you in what way your life is wrong, then I run people off. Contrary, if I take the Bible, tilt it at an angle, flip it upside down, and only teach the cream and fluff and sugar, I can grow a big church, but it'll be big and weak. Well, then folks will want to look into that mirror, but that's not the fullness of the mirror. You can't make the Bible into one of those funhouse mirrors where it kind of hourglasses your figure, makes you look skinnier in the middle. Amen. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's look at verse 18. But we all, with an open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, notice this is that present participle. Beholding, James 1 was beholdeth or beholded. This is a continuous. We continually behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's the same mirror. The law of liberty is glorious. It just doesn't always feel glorious. Paul here says, we all with an open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're changed into the same image. What happened in James 1? He looked and forgot and stayed the same. Here we look, keep looking, and we're made different. Here we look, 
We keep looking and it changes us. We're changed into the same image, even into the image of the glory of the Father. We're changed from glory into glory. We're changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. But that only happens when you look in the Word of God and you keep looking. And you look in the Word of God and you keep looking. And you look in the Word of God and you keep looking. And you don't get upset when you see another hair. You just reach up there and you pluck it. You don't get upset when your roots start to show. You just go get you some of that hair product and you just do your hair thing again. You don't get upset when that double chin starts drooping a little bit. You go do some exercises and lay off the cupcakes till your chin doesn't look like an upside down cupcake anymore. You can fix this stuff. But we, younger folks, maybe, I don't know, every once in a while you get to that place where you don't want to look in the mirror. You avoid the mirrors or you want to look at the mirrors in the low light. That's why the romantic restaurants are always low lit. Everybody, wants to, everybody looks better when there's no light. And so does your food. And maybe they set the lighting low so you can't see that that choice cut of veal is way smaller than you remember it being. And, and they dropped it on the floor. And that isn't Parmesan. It's floor crumbs. <laughs> or the cook was scratching his beard. And he has this whisker dander and not parsley. <laughs> there is one condition here to verse 18. You have an open face that is no veil over your heart. And this is what we're trying to communicate in this series of teachings is that your exaltation of a lived experience can put a veil over your heart so you can't see the Lord calling you to better. Peter had a veil over his heart, said, I don't like the Gentiles, and it prevented him from going on to better. Moses had a veil over his heart called, I'm mostly Egyptian and I'm trying to be a Hebrew, and it had to be removed. Then we saw Paul. He had a veil on his heart that says the Jews are number one. I love the Gentiles. I got nothing against them, but the Jews are God's people, right? We're still God's people. Yeah, and then we saw last week with David, he had a veil over his heart that says the sword is the best way to solve any problem. And when you have that veil, which a lived experience will always create, it's going to be real hard to look into that mirror and see what needs to be changed. One of the reasons the ladies like to put on makeup is it helps fill in some of those things the mirror talks about. We've, we've got to judge our lives for wherever this veil may be that permits us to keep looking into this law of liberty, into this glorious mirror, and stay the same. Now, my major thrust of ministry is change. And maybe, maybe it's because in this region we're so religious that it's hard to change. It's only hard if you don't want to change. Let me give you a word of warning. Pastor Vaughn died of cancer. As he was dying of cancer, kind of in a deep thought, he was working with Alan, Mr. Big Guy, over at their house, Alan, uh, Pastor Vaughn's house. He's dying of cancer. I've got to think he was evaluating his life and all the mistakes that had been made. And Alan said, he looked at him and said, Big Guy, or Alan, change is hard. Change is hard. Now, I disagree. I would add change is only hard when you've never gotten used to change. 
Because to me, change is easy. Now, maybe that's because I was raised bouncing around the country with my dad's career. When you've never moved, moving is hard. But if you're, I'm not a military brat, but if you're a military brat, moving's nothing. It's what you're used to. If you work out, working out is not hard. It's just part of, it hurts, it's sore, but you get so used to it. When you're not sore, that feels weird. I don't think change is hard. I think in a sense, not to dishonor Pastor Vaughn, I think he was telling off on himself inadvertently because change is not hard. It's only hard when you've never done it and now you have to learn how to do it and there's life and death on the line. But for 15, going on 15 years now, my main theme in this church has been change. You must change. You must be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Think about the totality of our testimony in Christ. We're born again, new creatures. Our spirit man is seated in heavenly places. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We speak in tongues. We are tongue-talking believers. We have a Bible. We own it. We own 100 copies. And on your phone, there's every translation ever imaginable. You've got wonderful doctrine, not just 400 years of this nation, but 100 years of Pentecostalism and word of faith, dominion theology, authority of the believer, cast out devils, renew your mind. What, what, what prevents us from changing? But a veil over our heart. In our prayer service today at noon, we were praying for the region, and this notion struck my heart. And in my heart, I just began to kind of, I don't know, just question, not question the Lord, but question with the Lord. I, and my, my heart was, Lord, for all the hundreds of hours of gospel that's preached every week in this region, there's no change. And for perhaps the millions of hours of gospel preached every week in this nation from every pulpit combined, there's no change. And then I thought, but, but for the five hours, because if you add up my four services a week, it's about five hours of my teaching ministry. And then I lead prayer for no less than two or three hours a week. For all that that goes on here, not much change here either. How is that possible except for veils over the heart? Because the whole reference is to Moses coming down from the mountain. He spent time with God. He's anointed. He's not the problem. God is God. He's not the problem. The Ten Commandments written in stone, they're not the problem. The problem is the people see all of it and they say, I don't want none of this. I mean, I want a little bit, but that's too much. Even the, high, even the priests and the helpers around Moses, they're even a little wigged out. And so Moses has to put a veil over his head. Look at verse 13 in the same chapter, 2 Corinthians 3.13. And not as Moses which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. Their minds were we're blinded. This is why we can hear the word and not change. Their perceptions were calloused. That's another way to read the verse. Their perceptions were calloused. For until this day, I would apply that to us in areas. Until this very evening, remaineth the same veil untaken away of in the preaching of certain sermons the preaching of certain doctrines. 
I get tickled because I hear things, sometimes through the grapevine, the church grapevine, sometimes maybe just in a whisper from you. I love it when people say, why has he got to harp on that again? Because of you. Why has he got to teach that again? Because of you. You that say that. You're the reason I preach on it. The veil remains untaken away, so the sermon gets hit again. Because your heart rejects what's being said, we say it again. I want you to understand, I know way more than I teach on a regular basis. And I feel like a broken record. I know things, I've studied things, I've written, I've got curriculum we've never even published yet, never even taught yet, but it's not necessary because we're failing at the same five things or six things. So why would we teach anything new if we're still failing the same five or six things? Why has he got to harp on that again? Because you keep coming back. <laughs> why is he hammering that so hard again? Oh, here he goes again. Yeah, it's because you have a veil over your head. I'll start calling you the bag lady. Because I'm in verse 12. I use great plainness of speech. I don't veil anything. I think you should know that by now. And that's why the people that come and stay, that's what they love about it. Those that don't, they get offended during the offering. They leave and don't come back. Those that stream and get offended, well, don't come because you won't handle it in person. I'm commanded to use great plainness of speech. It means great boldness in the, king, uh, in the Greek. Great boldness. Not as Moses who had to put a veil over his head because his people didn't want what God had. Even though their mouth said, I want it. I want it. I want it. I want it. We want it. We want to be free. We want to be free. We hate Egypt. We want to be free. Oh, God. Oh, God. We want you. And God shows up. No, no, no. Not that. Can't this be Build-A-Bear? Can I build a God? Can I take a little? Is this not like a smorgasbord? Can I not like piecemeal my God together? Have a little bit of this. Have a little bit of that. Have a little bit of this. Have a little bit of that. And once I construct God in my image, then I'll worship him. And that's not how this thing works. Moses goes up, his face comes down like the sun, and the people freak out, and so that he could even halfway lead them, he puts a veil over his head. And now in the New Testament, God tells his preachers, don't you dare put a veil over anything. Let it all out. And let them put the veil over their heart if they don't want it. And the reason we don't change is because we edit God's sermons ourselves. We're communist censures. <laughs> Your heart becomes everything you hate about our woke media and social media and the technocrats that take down any post they don't agree with. Your heart does the same thing. That's not for me. That's not for me. That's for my spouse, but they're not here tonight. I hope they're streaming. I'll get that. I'll forward that podcast. Why is he harping on that again? Well, that's not for me. He'll get off it eventually. Until this day, there remaineth the same veil untaken away of in our heart when certain sermons are preached. Which veil could be done away with in Christ? But even until this day, when certain sermons are preached, the veil is upon our hearts. And God is trying to change us. So that lived experience is one of the reasons we have these veils we think we don't have to let go of that idol that we're getting nailed on or that attitude or that, you pick it, lust, sin. But that thing's in us because it's our lived experience. 
Would to God there'd come a day where we'd reject and denounce our lived experience and say, Father, I denounce all of it. Like Paul, it's dung that I might have you. Thank you for the good that's in me. If you can find any of it, Lord, reprogram me, retrain me, make me what I need to be. Just start from scratch, Lord, like you did Paul, like you did Peter, took away his fishing industry, took Paul away from the Pharisees and just rebuilt them from scratch. Well, your pride, your ego, your idolatry, let God rebuild you from scratch and make you into something you don't fancy yourself right now. Because we all got some weird thing we fancy still. You ought to try being something you don't fancy just to realize it won't kill you to be normal or humble or peaceful or sweet. Try, just practice being something you're not. So James 1 says they beheld, past tense. 2 Corinthians 3 says they, we are to behold present participle. We keep doing it till we're fully changed. It is possible to read scriptures and never hear what they're saying to you. Seminarians, those that teach at the seminary, most of them anymore are not even born again except they're experts in the word. They read it and there's a veil over their blind perceptions. But if you and I will continue in it, if we remove that veil and have an open face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we can be changed into that same image. So let's tie this into Israel now and their lived experience because I want to try to hit at least one or two of the ladies of the Old Testament. But before we can do that, let's look at the bigger picture of Israel because maybe this is where we're at. I can't help but think about us. Uh, some of us, we ended up in a good Holy Ghost Spirit-filled church because we wanted more of God. Lord, I want more. Lord, I want more. Lord, I want more. Lord, I want to know you. Lord, I want to draw closer to you. And you don't realize that the closer you get to, to him and his power and his presence, the more of you gets crushed and knocked off and melted off. And at some point, we regulate that and say, all right, that's enough. And that's as far as we come in Christ. Whereas 20 years ago, we were running into that heat and that fire and that light as quickly as we could. And the past and weirdness and perversion and mama and uncle was getting blasted off of us. And at some point we said, you know what? This is enough. I'm too much like Christ. I think this will do. And that's where we hold off at. And that's when you instantly are counted as a backslider. Israel, let's give their lived experience. They were 430 years in Egypt, not every bit of it slavery, but probably every bit of 350, 380, because there was a good generation, and then the Pharaohs passed away who did not know Joseph, and then they began to be evil and treated. Don't get me wrong, hundreds of years of slavery, but not the full 430, okay? They lived segregated from the Egyptians in a neighborhood called Goshen. They were mistreated. They were a lower caste of citizens. They were shepherds and they were despised. Eventually they were used to build things for Egypt, like their treasure cities. They were used as slave labor. They moaned for deliverance, but they also couldn't get along. <laughs> Remember when Moses wanted to deliver them, he found two of them fighting among themselves. And he said, well, you are brethren. Why do you fight amongst yourselves? And they instantly turn on him. You're going to kill us like you did the Egyptian yesterday? So that's their lived experience. When that's your culture for 400 years, you're weird. You're oppressed. 400 years. That's almost twice as long as we have existed as a nation. Think about a people whose DNA is slavery 
living on the Nile floodplain, hand to mouth, chasing sheep, building treasure cities, and you can't get along. You got no Torah. All you have is the promise of Abraham. And does anybody even know God anymore? Oh, and by the way, everybody around you worships a whole pantheon of gods, and you probably do too. But there was that God of Abraham, and he promised to deliver us, and oh, God, deliver us. So this becomes their cry so much that God answers it. And he delivers them, and they're excited about it. And they're nervous, and they're excited, but, but they're excited about it because we're not going to be slaves. <laughs> and then the deliverance is nothing like what they wanted. And everything God does totally turns their life upside down. Every commandment God gave, every method of worship, every means of living was meant to retrain the past out of them. Everything God did throughout Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy was designed to obliterate Egypt. Everything God wants to do in your life will be designed to get the old you away from you. But you don't have to submit to it if you don't want. You can put a bag over your head and just keep coming. It's totally doable. In the wilderness, they were now nomads. They no longer had permanent homes. That's a revolution to their soul. They had supernatural water that had to be provided for them on a regular basis. They no longer had the consistent Nile River to drink from. That's a revolution to their soul. They now worshiped at a portable tabernacle, not in temples they built with their own hands. It's revolutionary to their soul. They now could only worship one God and had to reject the polytheism of the Egyptians. It's a revolution. They were now free, no more bondage, and that's hard. You even talk about folks who've come out of prison. They still use the bathroom the same time every day because that's when they were allowed to use the bathroom. It, they've been trained a certain way. They have manna from heaven every day. They no longer have to farm crops. That's weird. They now have a Sabbath day rest, which they're forbidden to do anything on. They no longer have a seven-day work week, and they had trouble keeping that. Anytime they were to build an altar, they were to build it out of stack stone because the Lord says, if you chisel on it, you instantly defile it. Why? Because they were stonemasons. The second they would have taken that tool to chisel something on that for Jehovah, Egypt would have been heard coming out of their hammer. So the Lord said, I don't care how good you are. Just give me some stack rock. That'll do. And here they could complain, well, that's not my gifting. You're not using me in my gifting. And the Lord says, I don't care about your gifting. It smells like Egypt. <laughs> Every bit of it was designed to get Egypt out of them to make them who God wanted them to be. This was their lived experience. And God said, I don't care. 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 Because all of it will ruin things. And what do we do? We defend it, we defend it, we defend it, we defend it, we fight for it. We use it as our own identity. And when that begins to hinder the gospel, it's gross sin. 
Anything that's pride is sin. It took 40 years for the generation who said they wanted to be free to either learn how to be free or to hurry up and die. And you and I don't have 40 years to be what we claim we want to be. The trek from the Red Sea to Jericho at Jordan's riverbank should only take about two weeks, 12 to 13 days. That's how quickly they should have done it. That's how quickly they should have been eager to change. They didn't. So we know they got to learn that lesson the next 40 years. 40 years of discipleship, and only a handful of the old-timers caught it. The others had to die out. The young generation, they knew nothing but nomadic living. That was their lived experience. It was about to get hard on them becoming an agrarian society. God cares nothing about the lived experience if it gets in the way of what he wants. So even your lived experience needs to be burned at the altar. I only loosely joke about still being hippie because I just want to be whatever God wants me to be. Probably whatever little bit flavor I have in me, either God doesn't care about or it's just within the margin of dumb, dumb error. And the Lord's like, that'll do, pig. That's fine. Because <laughs> you and I don't have a right to identify as anything but a born-again believer. Where's your pride at? It's probably nothing but a heaping pile of steamy dung. Because unless it's in the cross of Calvary, you're an idol worshiper. Proud of this. I'm proud to be this. I'm pr be proud of your kids. Be proud of your accomplishments, sure. But our identity is in Christ. It's nowhere else. Israel complained and murmured ten times about their own deliverance. They murmured and complained ten times about the very thing they groaned to God and claimed they wanted, which was deliverance. They had trouble being the very thing they claimed they wanted to be. And that may be some of us tonight. Do you have trouble being the thing you prayed for? Because it's easy. You just do it. You just get people out of your life. You just come to church on time every time. You just do it. How do you do it? You just do it. You just pray 30 minutes a day. You just do it. You just put your flesh under and lose weight. You just do it. You just budget 10% and tithe. You just do it. There's no magic secret sauce. I can meet with you all the time you want in private, but in the end, if you don't do it, you're just wasting my life. You just do it. How do you stop feeling sorry for yourself? You just do it. You just get a hold of yourself and just obey. This is not rocket science. It's not differential equations or matrix algebra. It's not even present participle gerunds. It's just shut up and do the Bible because you're born again and you're well able. It's just that simple. Or just hurry up and die off in the wilderness and get out of our way. I have come to now understand some people will live a wasted life. You will squander everything Christ purchased for you. You will be no example to your kids or grandkids. And you will have wasted all the investments of preachers and prayer lines and Bible studies and etc. You will have wasted it. 
and you will have justified the investment being wasted. You don't understand. Shut up. Just shut up. You don't understand. Yeah, I don't care. I don't care. Because I see people who come from a worse hellhole than you, far more victorious. And the sad thing is, you'll fail, and you'll be the last person in your lineage to ever know Christ. And that's not how this kingdom is supposed to work. They had trouble being free. Remember, they said, would to God we died in Egypt. The Lord said, I can arrange that. Would to God we could eat the melons and the leeks. Remember, we had garlic back in Egypt. Would to God we could go back there. Time and time again, they were trying to get parties together to go back to Egypt. And the Lord said, I'll arrange this. We'll let your carcasses drop here. We won't even put a tombstone at your head. <laughs> and they got what they wanted. Ten times they complained. They said, he said, fine. Would to God you died, you're dead. But it doesn't have to be your testimony. The sad thing is, these are the people that cried out for deliverance. And you come over into the book of Joshua, and you meet a prostitute named Rahab, who she testifies, and she says, from the moment we heard of what God did for you among the Egyptians, our hearts melted, and we had no strength within us. Because we knew at any moment what you did to those two kings of the Amalekites, you'd come and do to us. Here's a whore who doesn't have a family of her own. She has my father and mother and brothers and sisters. She pleads for their deliverance. But she doesn't say anything about her husband or children because she doesn't have them. Here's a whore who hears what God did to a different people, and her heart says, I'll have some of that. I'll have some of that deliverance. Oh, they're going to come for us. They're going to set me free from this lifestyle. And the very people who cried out for it didn't want it. The very people it was entitled to rejected it. The very people that cried and prayed and believed God for the deliverance squandered it. And while God was cutting them slack for 40 years, here's a prostitute living in the city wall, sleeping with who knows how many men, saying, hurry up, send them here. Hurry up, send them here. And, you know, if those Israelites had gotten their act together, she could have been delivered 40 years earlier. So let me ask you deadbeats. Whose help are you bottlenecking through your laziness, your ignorance, your disobedience, your excuse, and your reprobate lifestyle. Who are you holding up? Whose deliverance are you pissing away because of your shiftless, cookful religion? And how dare you say you're called to some kind of ministry because you're called to nothing. And it's evident by the way you live and make excuses and stay the same and treat each other. What whore could be delivered if you'd have gotten your act together 15 years ago and she's still praying for a deliverer. And here you are just playing patty cake, patty cake. I got calls all my life. No, you don't. You can't even get your own house in order. You can't even get your own money in order. You can't even get your own weight in order. How long had that woman cried out under different men's weight? I don't want to live this way. I don't, want to, I don't know how to stop it. I don't want to be a whore. I don't want to sleep with every man in this city. But you delivered those slaves 
and you'll deliver me. Oh, I hope they do to us what they did to the Amalekites because I'm going to get some deliverance. And her lived experience caused her to want better, and you don't ever see her wanting to go back. Oh, she comes out of that thing, and she gets married. She marries a Jew. She has a boy named Boaz, and there's no mention of her whoredoms or her past. She's just so happy to be free. She's just so excited. Just put me to work. And she raises Boaz to be a strong, mighty man. A powerful man, a wealthy man. Think about that. This man who's a half-breed, his mother's a whore, his daddy's a generation from slavery, and they're wealthy now because they don't worship the past. And they don't worship their lived experience. And they don't make these lame excuses. You don't know. Who cares? Because the one who does know doesn't care. It's so hard. Shut up. It's so hard. No, you're so weak. And you don't ever bother to seek God for help or deliverance. Who have we resigned to hell because we just sat in this pathetic church playing our little charismatic games with a little church pride thing because we had so much doctrine and so much anointing and so much this and that that we were so ooh. And I want you to know that when you fail to answer the call of God, whether it's to be a school teacher or a professor or a doctor or a missionary, you help send people to hell. And you always start with your own family first. So please understand, I care nothing about where you come from because neither does my God. He doesn't care where I come from. And I came from some pretty good family, pretty good life, pretty, pretty good American experience. He don't care about that. All he cares about is that I obey him today. No ifs, ands, or buts. No offense permitted. Just shut up, boy. Do what I tell you. Repent when I tell you. Quit doing that. Quit doing that. I've told you before. Don't do it again. That's all he cares about. And here we are, just sitting in this little bless me club, thinking we got it all together. And even then, we got so many excuses. Oh, I just wonder who's out there waiting for us to come and get our act together. But your ministry starts in your home. Get your act together. Your ministry starts by ministering to the Lord. Get your act together. Because if you walk with God, you're a different human being. Don't, don't come. Don't, please don't come with the engrafted word, little facade. Please don't come with the engrafted word, you know, I'm blessed. And we have our own little weird culture in this church. Just come and be honest. Just come and say, how you doing today? Pastor, I'm a mess. You know it. Please preach something that stomps a hole in my chest. Please put on that gospel sandal and put it right up my blessed assurance. I want to be seated in heavenly places, but you're going to have to punt me there. That would be refreshing. We live in a religious region. We are religious. In this church, we are religious. We pray religious. We worship religious. We take notes religious. How can I tell? Well, because we don't change. There's a glory, but there's a veil keeping it from touching our hearts and our lives. We could hoop and holler and take a lap, and woo! but if we go home the same, it was all in vain. What God is looking for is a changed life. 
And if God can't change the life of his kids, then we're, we, we, we strip hope out of people. Well, if God can't even change his kids, he'll never be able to change me. God can't help them. He'll never be able to help me. Those are his kids. That's a mature church. Those are mature leaders. Ah, uh, well, uh, I don't know who you run with. Where are we being different? What are we still battling the same? And when are we going to fix it? Or do we just need to wait for carcasses to die in the wilderness? Just take one or two Joshua's in, one or two Caleb's, and then, Lord, give me a bunch of young people after that. Rahab wanted escape from her life of degradation, and some of those Israelites wanted to go back. My question is, is there any proof you walk with God and he's changing you? Or is your attitude still the same? We can clean up on the outside. We can lift our hands on the outside. We can confess the right things on the outside. But is the aroma of our heart any different? Because if you're being washed, the smell will be cleansed. If your heart is pure, the aroma will be different. Uh, you, I won't tell you what you smell like. You smell like how you act at home. That's the aroma God smells out of your life. How you act at home, that's your worship. How you treat your spouse, that's the aroma of your soul. That's what God receives from you. How you treat your kids, how you lead worship with them, how you pray and read your Bible at home, that's the aroma of your life. Here, this can all be a facade. Here, we can just put on worship perfume and put on a facade. How you treat people in private, how you view them, how you talk to them, how you talk to God. If you don't talk to God in private, you have no walk with God. You don't read your Bible in private, you have no walk with God. You don't seek God on your own or worship him on your own, you have no walk with God. Let us be very clear on this. Coming to church is not a walk with God. It's a place where you tag up, get refreshed, get checked out, and then you go home and walk with God. So let's not be deceived in this. Thank God we can come to the altar. Thank God we can lift our hands. Thank God we got a good worship team. But look, if you're not doing some of this at home, you have no walk with God, and that may be the problem. You can only manifest here what you do at home. So we need to change the aroma of our life. And if you spend time with God, he'll show you how to do it. He'll show you how to do it. When your clothes get stinky, you put them in the washing machine, you double up a little bit of Clorox, a little bit of detergent, they come out smelling better. Your attitude stinks because you don't stay cleansed by God. It takes a constant washing of the water by God's word, and you can be a sweet, lovely man or woman of God if you want to be. Or just stay vile. <laughs> you can smell dirty on somebody 10 feet away. You can smell them in Walmart. I've smelled them on airplanes. I've smelled them in this sanctuary. I said, dude, I know you're in college, but wash that shirt. Take a shower. You stink. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of time. Let us divorce ourselves from the pride of our past. 
I don't think it'd be too hard to ask us to divorce ourselves from the pride of our culture. What is there but Christ? I mean, thank God we're multinational in this church. I think it's awesome. Thank God we're, we got folks from all over America. That's awesome. We have lots of nations represented. That's awesome. But when you get into pride over it and that's your identity, I curse it to hell. May I boast in nothing save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom I have been crucified and the world has been crucified to me. So let's get to the heart of whatever our issue is. And if people can see change in our life, then we're really changing. Have you noticed you can smell when somebody's just come from the shower? Like you can almost pinpoint the soap they use. Like that's Irish spring. That's my people. That's not true. It's Scottish spring. <clears throat> that's lever 2000. That's dove. That's bath and body works. You can smell when people have come. That's fresh cologne. You can smell. They ought to be able to smell fresh on us in the spirit fresh attitude, fresh love, fresh joy, fresh peace, fresh confidence, fresh faith. They ought to be able to smell it on us. And I shouldn't be the one that puts it on you. That's what you do Monday through Saturday on your own, in your car, at your family altar. That's what you do. Amen?